0: This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Hello and welcome. It is Friday, March 26th, and today we have a special guest to talk to us about vaccination conspiracies, anti-vaccine, and vaccine hesitancy surrounding COVID-19. We have with us Anna Muldoon. She is a co-author of the new book, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, and she currently focuses on conspiracy, misinformation, and apocalypticism around infectious disease outbreaks. She's a former science policy advisor at the Department of Health and Human Services. While there, she focused on international public health systems, lab biosafety and biosecurity, science communication, and policy development for regulating genetically altered biological organisms. She has published peer-reviewed articles on biodefense history, U.S. implementation of non-proliferation treaties, and infectious disease surveillance systems. She holds a master's in public health from George Washington University and is currently a PhD student in the School for the Future of Innovation Society at ASU. Whew. Anna, welcome.
1: Thank you. I forget how ridiculous my bio is until somebody reads it to me.
0: It's not ridiculous. It's exciting and impressive. Thank you. And we can't wait to talk to you today. Uh, about vaccines, misinformation, and COVID-19. As you know, the misinformation seen around COVID-19 has been distinct. And one of the things that we've been talking about on the show for a little while now has been kind of angles around anti-vaccination and vaccine hesitancy. Not just because they're kind of of the moment, but also because anti-vaccination and vaccine conspiracies are an interesting inroad into understanding misinformation. And so you're the perfect person to talk to about this. But one question that, you know, uh, folks that we've interviewed previously have been practitioners in medicine, but you've got this kind of unique perspective on these issues. And so one of the first questions that we want to ask you is historical. Namely, you know, a lot of folks are kind of familiar with the recent history of anti-vaccination going back to some of the published literature in the kind of late 80s and 90s. But where is all of this anti-vaccination coming from? Or where are some of the earliest meaningful points in anti-vaccination?
1: How did we get here? So as you both know, this is one of my favorite topics. You know, basically, as long as vaccines and inoculation have existed, there have been people who resisted taking them or resisted using them as social tools. So my favorite example, because it gets a little bit crazy, is in 1721-22, Cotton Mather in Boston was told about inoculation by a slave, Onesimus, who he owned, and decided that this practice should be Adopted in all of Boston as a way to prevent the just starting smallpox outbreak. It didn't go well. A lot of people did not have any interest in inoculation. They were very concerned that it would spread smallpox instead of preventing it. And there were a lot of theological concerns about it as well, about whether it was human interference in the divine plan. And this all spins out of control into this. Kind of amazing war of pamphlets being published back and forth, which are, they were kind of the social media of the day, right? They're just short documents that people would sell or give out to spread their viewpoints because, well, Twitter didn't exist in 1722. They needed a different way to yell at each other. So it turns into a pamphlet war. And then it turns into a massive fight in the Boston City Council. And sort of the place that most of us end the story is. Partway through this, someone threw a flaming brick through Cotton Mather's window in an attempt to set his house on fire with a note attached that said, I'll inoculate you with this, you dog. So basically, inoculation and vaccination have been controversial since they were proposed in the United States. We all, we like to think our moment is unique. Not as much.
0: Would you say that? A flaming brick with a paper note tied to it with the expectation that the receiver would actually get the note is emblematic of some of the reasoning behind
1: anti-vaccination. This is one of the things that I sort of love about that story is like, if the flaming brick had worked, he would never have seen the note with the cause. We know that, right? It seems so.
0: (laughs) So speaking of reasoning, take us into the reasoning. So you mentioned some theological concerns some concerns that it would spread everywhere and that it that it escalated to to the city level. What do you make of some of the concerns? What what kinds of issues were people wrestling with? Was this a was this a good faith skepticism of of vaccination or was something else going on?
1: So I think that some some of the skepticism was reasonable, unlike vaccination, inoculation, in involved cutting a slit in someone's arm and putting live smallpox from someone who had survived in it. So it was not a pleasant process. It did give you smallpox. And they would try to get material from the person with the, you know, mildest case, but no guarantees. So some of the concerns were reasonable. Others of the concerns sound not that unfamiliar to things we hear now right this is experimental we don't know what it's going to do it might harm me it might let me spread it it might harm my family i don't understand how it works and so i don't want to participate there were a lot of calls for more research there are things that we hear now but there were also a lot of concerns about i don't want to put something in my body right that i think we also hear echoed in discourse today.
0: Yeah, fascinating. That does seem to rhyme with a lot of what we hear kind of in our our own contemporary moment. Moving forward, after the smallpox kind of debate in Boston, what's the next checkpoint for you that brings us along the path that we're on now?
1: So I think that there, there were several moments in the evolution of vaccination that were really contentious. So when we moved from inoculation into actual vaccination with Jenner for smallpox, the instant anybody talked about requiring vaccination to keep the population safe, there was immediately a movement against it. So the, the earliest real anti, anti-vaccination organizations pop up within 10 years of vaccination becoming common. With Jenner, what year are we talking here? So the the first anti-vaccination leagues had gained public power and really organized themselves by 1866. So by the end of the 19th century, there are several anti-vaccine organizations in Britain that are making arguments against compulsory vaccination, including individual freedom, bodily autonomy medical exemptions, which hopefully all sound somewhat familiar to people living now. The arguments were not that different.
2: So to go back one second, you've mentioned two words. You mentioned an inoculation and you've mentioned a vaccination. Are those different or the same thing?
1: So they're, they're very different. Inoculation is insertion of live smallpox into the skin, right? Through You just cut an arm. A lot of people would use a thread and... Put it in the cut, but it basically gave people a mild case of smallpox. Vaccination, on the other hand, doesn't use live virus most of the time. Early smallpox vaccinations use it's cowpox, um, so it's incredibly mild. Humans don't get sick with it, but it does protect from the regular smallpox virus. And then once you get to modern vaccination, there's one or two attenuated virus vaccines left that we use very rarely that are just a very weak form. Most vaccinations have absolutely no live virus in them and very few even have whole virus in them. So much safer, way less dangerous. Inoculation was not very safe. Vaccination is very safe.
2: But sort of considering, you know, as I think in COVID, as we've seen, A lot of people are talking about the risk of getting COVID versus the risk of vaccination. Were there discussions historically about the risks of, say, the smallpox inoculation versus getting smallpox or polio, the vaccine versus getting polio?
1: Absolutely. Those conversations happen around pretty much every vaccine. And you almost always have someone out there somewhere saying, no, no, I'd rather just get it regardless of the risks because I want the natural route or because I don't trust the vaccine. So yes, with inoculation, with early smallpox vaccination, with every vaccine that we've had, the conversation about kind of the relative risk of getting the disease versus getting the vaccine has been a social conversation. and. Unfortunately, that conversation rarely includes the piece about, you know, once I get the vaccine, then I become a firebreak for the people in my life who have compromised immune systems or can't get the vaccine for some odd medical reason or, you know. So with all vaccines, right, each one of us that gets it protects the other people around us. And that's unfortunately not often part of that risk-benefit calculation.
2: In current conversations around COVID, the more sort of anti-vaccination crowd, their argument is that those people should just stay home until it's safe, right?
1: It is. Unfortunately, for some of those people, that would mean basically staying home forever. For people with severely compromised immune systems, all of us being vaccinated is kind of the only way that they ever get to be out again. And since I love some of those people, I think it's worth it. We as a society have to make the choice to care about the people among us who need our help, right? It's sort of an individual and a social choice about what you prioritize.
0: So it's fascinating to hear you talk about, we could call it the early history of vaccine hesitancy and then drawing a through line to our present moment. Uh, Because what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in the 1700s and the 1800s, you might have had a point if you were a little hesitant about cutting your arm open and running smallpox through it. But those arguments don't age well when we move into the 21st century. And so it feels like the same arguments being made in a completely different context.
1: Exactly. It's one of the things I think is really interesting is that even as vaccines have gotten safer and safer and safer and more and more and more data is available, particularly on something like the MMR vaccine. We really haven't totally erased those very, very old lines of argument that really don't hold up with how safe and effective the vaccines that we have now are. But they still pop up over and over. And on the the flip
2: side is that the Diseases that we vaccinate for are pretty nasty diseases. These aren't run of the mill. Eh, it's like I stub my toe. These are lots of people die before these vaccines were in development. Right?
1: Absolutely. In the very early twentieth century, the majority of children did not survive until age five. That's one of the reasons people had so many children. Right? Our perception of the severity of infectious disease seems to have fallen away as we're really mostly protected from them and we don't see them as often. Um, I think particularly in, you know, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, right? Since I primarily study the U.S., I try not to make big statements about global issues.
2: (laughs) Would it be fair to say that vaccines are a victim of their own success in that we don't see these horrific diseases that the vaccines prevent so therefore it's easier for some people to feel that the vaccines might not be necessary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think in a lot of cases that's very true. And I think it's really easy to say, well, you know, I only have a one in a thousand or one in ten thousand chance of this terrible long-term effect from a disease or of dying. And, you know, I I won't be the unlucky one. Or my kids won't be the unlucky ones. And I think that's also part of it, right? We all sort of assume that we won't be the one whose child has terrible effects from one of these diseases or us ourselves when they're adult vaccinations.
0: The idea of all of us being connected somehow or being part of a network or even just the concept of a network is becoming much more prevalent. And so it feels kind of anachronistic and out of time, not only to advance 18th century counter arguments to vaccination, but also to insist that only individual choice matters and that individual choices only go as far as individual lives. That, that feels almost like an extension of a philosophy that may have lost some of its explanatory value for what we observe in social systems today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I find fascinating about my historical infectious disease work is the ways in which it's very clear that despite some of the political philosophies of the 18th and 19th centuries really pushing towards individualism, there was also kind of an instinctive social understanding that infectious disease was a social issue, right? That there was no real way to like protect only yourself. You had to get the disease out of the space and out of the community if you wanted to actually protect yourself. And so kind of community action was almost a baseline. Now, look, not always good community action. Some of the some of the responses to infectious disease outbreaks have been really awful, but still community response. And the idea that, you know, individual lives matter and individual choices matter, but so does the social body and that there is a good larger than the individual good. And I I think I hope that we are kind of rediscovering now in the 21st century, that concept of the larger social good inside the social network and the need for, you know, coordinated social action to protect ourselves from things like disease and climate change and, you know, all the bad stuff.
0: Uh, that's very interesting. I, I, like, so your, your historical perspective seems to indicate that it's almost like this hyper individualistic approach to vaccination that we're hearing today is like, it's kind of a caricature of some of the, some of the earlier kind of political visions uh, in the time contemporaneous to what your research indicates, so that's that's interesting to me that that that's present, and that people really do feel uh, in the rhetoric of a lot of things that that we've observed they feel like this is their fundamental right as an American that goes back that traces its lineage back to hundreds of years ago, and they feel like it's their individual liberty that they're expressing through their resistance to vaccination or to wearing a mask is part of the constitution is part of this important 18th century document
1: yeah i i i like the idea of kind of a caricature of older ideas i mean i i still you know of course i i work on conspiracy so i spend a lot of my time existing in kind of strange cognitive dissonance but i find it fascinating to hear all of these arguments about what the founders would have thought about individual liberty around vaccination when, you know, George Washington is the guy that made smallpox vaccination mandatory for the revolutionary army because too many people were getting sick and they couldn't fight. Sorry, inoculation back, in, back then, but... He basically said, yeah, uh, everyone's getting smallpox and we're going to lose this war and not make a country if we do not actually just start vaccinating everybody. So this idea that they would not have agreed with things like compulsory vaccination is surprising, but also really kind of an ahistorical way of looking at their own statements and actions. And then also at like early Supreme Court cases that upholds the the greater good over individual liberty during infectious disease outbreaks. So it's, it's a reconstruction, basically, and one that is not totally accurate.
2: So I see a new ad campaign with, you know, COVID vaccination. Washington did it with smallpox. You can do it with COVID, right?
1: I like it. <laughs> right. Um, I mean... I have no objections to mobilizing patriotism to get people to get vaccinated if that line will work. I'm a bit of a pragmatist on some of these things.
2: In thinking about these theories, this misinformation around historical perceptions, why do you think that these incorrect perceptions, you know, where they're saying the founding fathers, you know, they would be against vaccination, but we have historical evidence that that's totally not correct why do you think that misinformation is allowed to survive
1: and prosper? <laughs> uh really good question. Um I you know, I think that there are so many ways where we reconstruct history around what we want it to say, right? And we we've all seen this in bad high school textbooks that make the history of our country cleaner and nicer than it ever was. But I think that humans might be kind of terrible at actually identifying what we're freaked out about in the moment and so people mobilize other forms of evidence and other forms of argument to justify what they're feeling or thinking or worried about when they can't quite articulate what the actual thing is and i i think some of that is going on around the anti-vax movement.
0: People who describe misinformation and conspiracy resort to the language of mental illness to describe the motivations for why someone would believe a conspiracy or, or subscribe to misinformation. And if somebody is really committed to a conspiracy or misinformation, the word that comes out is crazy. These people are crazy or they've lost their minds or all these ways of of really obfuscating the mechanic that you're talking about, that human beings have this thing that they do where they marshal other forms of evidence to explain. Explanatory value is something that you can't ignore when you're thinking about misinformation. And so I I like this point that you've made because it helps humanize people who are oftentimes, right. it's very easy to dehumanize them. It's very easy to be angry. But resorting to just the same tropes of mental illness feels like it's not helping the conversation either.
1: Oh, yeah. I am definitely the person who like sighs at CNN every time someone says the conspiracists are crazy, because I think it doesn't one, it doesn't move the conversation forward. But I think the dehumanizing point is a really important one that the ways that we talk about each other and in my case, about my subjects of study really matters right the words we use really matter and so i take both the narratives that i study these conspiracy stories and the humans that are creating them seriously as humans right i don't think that they're crazy i think sometimes sometimes they're being misled sometimes they're feeling desperate sometimes they're very scared and honestly Sometimes it's just a really good story that you want to pass on because it is the craziest big fish story you've ever heard. A couple of my friends from home definitely retell conspiracy stories because they're like, all right, we love big fish stories. This is better than anyone we've ever come up with. But who knows if the friends they're telling them to end up believing them as reality, right?
0: Yeah, but they have some entertainment value.
1: Oh yeah, particularly the kind of more out there ones, right? Aliens living in the center of the earth running the government through a variety of institutions are particularly the ones that go into a lot of detail describing the aliens. I totally understand why people find them entertaining even if they don't actually believe them.
0: Yeah, and and I think one way to humanize anyone who's on the receiving end of misinformation is to ask what the value of that misinformation is to that person. And sometimes that value can be explanatory and sometimes that value can be entertaining.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating about urban legends is that they're morality tales a lot of the time, right? They work a lot like fairy tales, not always, but a lot of the time. And they're basically explaining good behavior and the consequences of bad behavior. One of my favorite takes on 80s uh, slasher films
0: is this idea that there's this tacit morality to 80s slasher films because it's teenagers behaving badly and they're going to be punished by some kind of aberration. Sorry, slight detour. We warned you that this might happen. We're going back on track now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love detours. I love detours. But yes, absolutely. And conspiracies are not always that dissimilar, I think. Sometimes, but not always. And
2: I think another point about the value of misinformation is that there's value in those CNN commentators and others saying that people who believe conspiracy theories are crazy or have these sorts of fears are crazy because then that legitimizes their fears and delegitimizes others' fears. Such a good point. It's useful across the board. And this othering creates some distance to say, well, that's not legitimate, but this is.
1: Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think there's also a deep tendency among all of us to say, well, those people believe in conspiracy theories, but I wouldn't, right? My community doesn't. Well, one, that's highly unlikely. The overwhelming majority of Americans hold some conspiracy belief. And there is a fabulous book that looks at letters to the editor over a pretty large time span, I honestly can't remember how long it is, and finds that, yeah, it's always been like this. There have always been people writing letters to the editor of newspapers about the conspiracy theories that they believe in. And it's just, it appears to kind of be a built-in facet of at least our society, which unfortunately we seem to be pushing out further and further to more and more of the world, which is less than great. But, you know,
2: hopefully we'll figure out what to do about that. I agree that everyone loves a tall tale. I mean, I I grew up in northern Kentucky, you know, the the home of tall tales, maybe. But do you think that there's a difference between the circulation of a conspiracy theory and the belief? Like, can we separate those two things out? Because if someone might circulate a conspiracy theory for entertainment value, but not necessarily believe it, but then... Might that lead someone to believe it?
1: Yeah, I don't think I have a great answer. It's one that I think about and have been trying to figure out a good way to think through and prop- and to study. But I think that we have a fair amount of evidence that some of the people circulating conspiracy theories don't believe them or believe a piece, but not all of it or are circulating them for entertainment. So I I do think there is sometimes a difference between people who are marginally interested in an idea and people who hold it deeply, right? And both can transmit the idea without having the same levels of belief, if that makes sense.
2: It does. And in the past, we've talked about other conspiracy theories, like some of the QAnon, conspiracy theories around say Wayfair for example and we've often talked about there are gaps in the conspiracy theories that are kind of entry points so like let you fill in so it's not like you don't have to believe the whole thing but there's a gap in here that you can fill in that resonates with your beliefs your fears your concerns and that becomes your entry point and then you sort of then start to get caught up in this conspiracy theory community which then sort of Turns into this this process of bringing you in is is that is that a possibility? Do you think?
1: Oh yeah, Uh, some of the people I know are looking at the way that people get pulled into conspiracy a lot, like a radicalization process. It starts as like light conversation, someone sort of thinking something, and over time they get pulled deeper and deeper and deeper in. And particularly with something like QAnon. That is this unbelievably complex, deeply coded, super conspiracy of super conspiracies. I think that there's, there's very clearly a process of people getting sucked in. The good news is I think that that means that if you can catch your family and friends early in starting to think these things or use the language, sometimes you can pull them back before they get all the way sucked in.
2: Yeah, because right after the Capitol occupation on January 6th, there are a whole bunch of stories in the news and they're talking about this deprogramming. How do we think of ISIS, for example, as a, a potential, like how people enter ISIS, people exited ISIS? What are those processes and can we use that as a similar sort of QAnon? But they often describe it a bit like, you know, the white van that comes up and picks someone and take them away to deprogram them, more like a deprogramming.
1: Yeah, I get a little itchy when it starts to sound like we're going to like kidnap people and force them to believe something else, although I understand the impulse having some people in my life that do believe in QAnon, trust me, I get it. But also, you know, kidnapping is bad. So I I think the, the moment after January 6th was really interesting because a lot of QAnon people did lose faith and a lot of them could be kind of peeled away by family, by friends, sometimes on social media, right, by people who had left QAnon. But in other cases, they moved deeper and deeper in. And as QAnon was deplatformed from, you know, mainstream social media and moved into more closed spaces, it uh, it has gotten more radical and also has become... Really, those channels are full of people recruiting for much more concerning groups like white supremacists, who I'd rather didn't get more members.
0: Yeah, one of the kind of deplatformed QAnon theories that I had seen was that former President Trump and current President Biden had exchanged faces and they were living a kind of presidential version of the film Face Off where President Trump was actually in power wearing president Biden's face.
1: Oh yeah. There, there is a book that more and more of us just keep talking about constantly to the point. I think everyone's getting annoyed at us called when prophecy fails. And I think that it might be a book that everyone needs to read right now. If they're interested in what's going on with things like Q because it, It discusses what happens when prophecy does not come to pass. And we're seeing everything in that book happening with QAnon. Can you give an example? Sure. So one of the options is to just move the goalposts, right? Well, the apocalypse wasn't today. Maybe it's going to be next year, right? Interestingly, we saw this with the Millerites, right? One of the first big apocalyptic movements in the U.S. The first date Miller predicted passed, nothing happened. And so they pushed it back a year. So the great disappointment is actually almost a year after when he originally predicted the second coming. This is really common. And you've seen it with QAnon, right? So, you know, Trump was supposed to win the election and then It wasn't going to get certified, and then they were going to take back the capital, and then it was going to be March 20th. There's another date now that I actually don't remember what the new one is. It's now changing often enough that I have lost track because QAnon is not my main objective study, thankfully. So, you know, that kind of ever-adjusting goal when the major thing is going to happen is really common. A lot of people losing faith and walking away while others really dig in is another really well-known response to failed prophecy. So there's a reason none of us will shut up about this book for the past couple of months. So let me briefly
2: ask a question. We've mentioned misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory, and now prophecy. Are these different? Are these the same thing? Is there light between them? Are they all enmeshed and so connected that we can't pull them apart?
1: Is this the part where we get to disagree with each other on air? Because I think that would be entertaining.
2: This is where we fight to the death and then whoever is living (laughs) wins.
1: Right. So Sean and I have had some conversations about separating out mis- and disinformation and like whether and how important the separation is in my own work. I use disinformation for kind of intentionally spread bad information that has a goal. Misinformation for confusion, like lack of intent to mislead, but wait, what is going on? And then conspiracy theory and conspiracy belief really are much more narrative, right? So misinformation can be. Very simple. Conspiracy really is a a narrative core rather than it's a story, not just a piece of information. I love apocalypticism. It's how I got into conspiracy and it will always sort of be at the heart of my studies. Prophecy is just the prediction of a particular thing at a particular time, usually with a religious connotation, but in studying conspiracy theory, I've started using the word to talk about conspiracy prediction as well, because I think it fits as does the level of faith required to keep following it when the prophecy doesn't come true, right? It's
0: interesting to think like the literal definition of apocalypse is like, what, unveiling or revealing, right? And so that that totally fits with a lot of what you've been saying this point that you've made about the kind of end of the current order that apocalypse in a lot of traditions is kind of understood as this end of the way that we know it. And yeah, who could fault anyone for thinking that right now? Because we are, I don't know, the soft argument about this is change. You know, it just just feels completely meager and inadequate to talk about any of this as, as change or even transformation. This feels incredibly radical. It makes sense what you're saying very much.
1: I I do think it's worth just like for a little bit of hope, right? Because yes, in a lot of ways, I I don't think the world will ever be the same. But in all my historical work that ended up getting me to apocalypticism and disease, and then eventually to conspiracy and this book, right? One of the things that I, with my strange responses to history, find really encouraging is that yeah? The world is never quite the same after a major outbreak, right? Things don't go back to what they were, but sometimes the ways they rearrange themselves are kind of progress or move us towards something better, right? It is possible to make good out of the terrible over time, um, and sort of human civilizations have figured out how to do that over and over. So I have hope that we too will figure out how to get there.
0: And all this change sounds like a great opportunity for misinformation to just make up stories and have people believe it about things
1: like vaccinations. I think particularly in this moment, because of some of the politics we experienced, trust is a, in institutions is a, probably an all-time low. I have not looked at a survey, but I would be very surprised if it wasn't. And information chaos has created so many giant social cracks for misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy to weave their way into, particularly around COVID and around vaccination and treatment and quarantine and masks. And it's really been kind of amazing the extent to which these social fractures have allowed a blossoming of conspiracy and misinformation in a way that, honestly, even studying this, I I knew it was going to be bad. I did not realize it was going to be this bad.
2: But I think this makes sense in many ways if we go back to fear of the vaccine, fear of COVID itself, fear of limitations. There's this deep fear that things will never be the same, that our every change is a threat to our way of life or the way our life was.
1: I, I think that a lot of the anti-lockdown protests really are about, I just want my life back. Stop telling me that I have to live like this. I want things to go back to the way that they were. And I think that as frustrating as I find some of the anti lockdown and anti mask protests, I also have some sympathy for the levels of desperation to return to our lives that people feel. It doesn't make me agree with them, but I can, for some of their arguments, I guess I can understand kind of where they're coming from. But it's, you know, we also have to try to protect each other too. (laughs) So that brings me to this idea that
2: you've mentioned kind of a thread that's been throughout our conversation. One of the many threads is that conspiracy theories are built on real fears. And for example, there are certain populations in the US, especially African-American populations that might specifically for the vaccine be afraid because in the past they've had some, I don't think poor experiences cuts it, they've been abused tormented by the medical establishment by the political establishment so their vaccine hesitancy which is different of course than anti-vaccination might make sense right
1: absolutely in these conversations i've discovered that apparently most most people know about tuskegee which is really good but it's pretty rare that people know about sort of the lo- the long and really dark history of the US medical system with black communities. A lot of the a lot of the conspiracy theories that have been circulating in black communities around the vaccine in particular and a lot of the misinformation relate to fears of experimentation, of targeting by the government, of targeting by medical systems and also, quite frequently, a, well, there's barely any medical system in neighborhood, city, town. Why are they here with the vaccine now? Right. And that I I think that those are things that we're going to have to fix long term as a society because they don't they don't seem unreasonable as foundation points for. um. Concern for misinformation, for conspiracy. And then there is also the really horrifying phenomenon of very wealthy white anti vax communities mobilizing those fears to target misinformation and conspiracy theory at black communities. Say more about that. Could you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So the United States anti vax movement is actually. Majority white, very wealthy, often very well educated. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are a lot of anti vaxxers in academia. Who knew? I did not until I started studying this. Now I'm sad. And those movements have a lot of infrastructure and a lot of money, but also are perfectly willing to encourage anti vaccine and vaccine hesitant ways of thinking. In other communities using whatever tools necessary. So, in this case, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I believe, put out a documentary that's really targeted at Black communities, mobilizing real fears, real discrimination, real history to push anti COVID vaccination lines. I personally find this deeply disturbing and would like people not to do that. Black communities in the U.S. have enough to deal with without being the targets of yet more. But it it has been, sadly, pretty effective. Now, the good news is that some vaccine hesitancy, we have kind of a longstanding set of toolkits to deal with. But unfortunately, they're really human, right? So... Getting community leaders and organizations and churches and musicians and you know the grandmother that knows everyone in the neighborhood involved in promoting vaccination actually counters that kind of campaign really well, but of course it's human to human, so it's a little bit slower than pushing out documentary with a lot of bad info in it on social media.
2: The Center for Countering Digital Hate calls John Kennedy Jr. one of the disinformation dozen, stating that. He's one of the primary sort of points of contact that are the vast majority of anti vax messages that are circulated in social media come from like his account and they claim that he's part of the so called anti vax industry.
1: That is correct. There really is basically an anti vaccine industry. And it's it's unfortunate that they have so much money and influence that they can push anti COVID messages as well as kind of more traditional anti vaccine messages. But yeah, there's there is an entire infrastructure and industry and set of conferences, you know, websites, publications, social media accounts, YouTube channels, but also in-person conferences all over the world run by the anti-vax movement.
0: It does feel like that that anti vaxxers are kind of obsessed with cleanliness and purity. Oh yes, and that is a completely different motivation uh, from, say. We don't trust vaccines because the establishments that, have, that are the purveyors of the vaccines at the moment have a really uneven history.
2: Those feel like totally different motivations. You're making me think of the you know the, the, organic whole food, like the organic clean food movement that's part of QAnon that when you tell most people, like shocks the hell out of them. Like they don't understand why the quote unquote QAnon shaman, why well, would only eat like organic food. But that's part of the whole anti-vaccine movement that intersected with Q. Like, oftentimes you have multiple conspiracy theories and multiple communities coming together at these points. And COVID was an excellent example of that, right?
1: That That's a really good way to ask it. <laughs> I mean, I'd, we can also be fancy and use convergence.
2: <laughs> well, you can say convergence. I don't know. I, I slightly, um, not obsessed, but the QAnon shaman guy cracks me up in a way. But.
1: Oh, he's wonderful. And he's so, oh, he's fascinating.
2: And he's he's also, like, he's like this, like, buff man, too, which is very weird. Like, it's not what you, I think the public perception of what a member of Q or a conspiracy theory would be, like, that's, he doesn't look
1: like the archetype that we've built in our heads. Yeah. Oh, we need to introduce you to Pastel Q on Instagram, because how do you feel about Organic, clean eating, yoga teachers doing yoga on surfboards wearing QAnon and mega gear because no, nothing makes sense anymore. That makes perfect sense to me. I, I know you were saying
0: nothing makes sense
1: anymore <laughs> no. facetiously, but, it, yeah. but it, it
0: it does make sense to me. Um, it in the sense that this kind of quest for purity, yes. is 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 in some ways an attempt to troll or declare your independence from a lot of
1: the institutions you distrust in the first place. Absolutely. There is an entire long conversation about like the various forms of self-making that happen in anti-vax movements, in conspiracy movements, right? Like I am genuinely still feeling my way through what I think about it because I am increasingly convinced that, like, self-making and sense-making and narrative creation are all happening at the same time in these movements. So is self-making and identity-making the same? A way that people are defining themselves to and in themselves, while there is also the creation of a group identity that allows people to feel part of a community. So the anti-vax mom groups, right? Or the, the matching QAnon shirts that you see at conferences. They're, they're ways of marking an identity that is linked to the conspiracy belief or the conspiracy narrative. And I think that there's sort of an individual internal one, a group identity creation one, and then also the narrative itself. And how all three of those things hook together. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like
0: a really interesting braid of
1: concepts.
0: You know, I'm just struck by just how interesting this entire trajectory is that you've traced from the historical roots to some of the religious and apocalyptic resonances to some of the political expediency. All of these things are part of anti vaccination. And then even some you know, very uh, kind of good faith skepticism that has been part of it, making this not as simple an issue as just saying, you know, all of these oat milk drinkers on Instagram who don't want to get a vaccination have just lost their minds, right? That's probably the laziest and least helpful way of of reading this. And a, a lot of what you've brought to the to the interview today has just kind of given all kinds of texture tools and insights to help think through this?
1: I think particularly around health topics and vaccines, it's incredibly important to think about the complexities of these movements and of people's motivations and sort of the ways in which it's not totally unreasonable that people were worried about a vaccine that was created really quickly with a technology they're not terribly familiar with. And that's under an emergency use authorization, right? We have more and more and more data to show that it's safe. But the initial concerns were not in like they weren't crazy. The public health people were like, yeah, we're making no comments until we see the data. Once we saw the data, we said, yes, they are safe and effective. That is awesome. But before we had gotten to see the data, The conspiracies were already up and out and running in the world, as were the concerns about experimentation and discrimination and depopulation. And some of the vaccine conspiracies go to some very dark and strange places, but they are not the majority.
2: Because there's some interesting bedfellows within the conspiracy community that we're discussing here around COVID and QAnon and such. You know, because we have anti vaxxers which have been around for a while, as you said. Well, since the 1770s, right? We have white supremacists that are involved. We have militias. We have far right communities. We have like, clean natural food movements that are involved. Some extreme versions of that. I mean, it's this Las Vegas buffet of different groups that you can hitch your wagon to. And then meet a whole bunch of groups, right? If you don't like the chicken, have the beef. If you don't like the beef, have the tofu.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the things that Seems to be happening right now is kind of a rearrangement of who's connected to who, who's working with who, who's being recruited by who among these movements and how they're combining and recombining and breeding new versions of conspiracy or extremist or social movements. It's fascinating, but I will say, I do not like the anti-vaxxer, QAnon, militia hookup, right? I I don't want to know what that's going to make. And I do not like it at all. I would like it to stop. But it's out there. And I think that we're going to continue to see recombinations of these things. De- Deserteau would say that this is what happens in a social crisis, right? That all of the things that underlie our society, all the things that we don't think about, the contentions, the mess, the weird stories sort of float up to the surface, and then we actually have to deal with them. Just so happens that for COVID, we had a lot to deal with, and now it's all up and encountering each other and becoming something new and honestly more frightening.
0: Well. On that cautionary insight, and on probably one of the best metaphors Sean has ever rolled out on the podcast.
2: Do you want the steak or the tofu?
0: We, we thank you for joining <laughs> us. I can tell we know already that we're going to have to talk to you again. This has been a cracking interview that's covered hundreds of years worth of material and has kind of brought touched us down in a place that is, is very thoughtful for our own contemporary moment. And I think it gives a lot of food for thought. Anytime. This was super fun. All right, so that's all we have for this installment. Thank you for joining us this time. Be thoughtful and be well. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.